2 Kings chapter 19, and let's read together. I'll read here. I'm going to read verse, I think I advertised through the 13th verse, but I'm, I'm probably only going to get through verse 7 today. And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna the scribe. And the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for children have come to birth, and there's no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Amen. Now, <clears throat> our message is entitled Days of Distress, and we're going to consider uh, this passage in two parts. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, we're going to see that Hezekiah seeks the Lord and the prophet Isaiah. Hezekiah seeks the Lord and his prophet Isaiah. And then in verses 6 and 7, we're going to look at the response of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. So it's pretty simple. Two points, boys and girls, I think all of you can remember this, right? So dads, when you ask this afternoon, what was the sermon about? You kids will be able to say, oh, there were two points. One was that Hezekiah went to the Lord through the prophet Isaiah and that the Lord spoke back to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah. So pretty simple. But as simple as that outline is, there's a lot of substance that we can take away within it. So let's first of all talk about Hezekiah seeking the Lord and his prophet. Now, as I said prior to the reading of the scripture, the Assyrians, the enemy, literally is at the gates. Where we left Hezekiah last week, you'll remember that the Assyrians had already overtaken the ten tribes of Israel in the north. They also then, after that, invaded the land of Judah and we assume swallowed up all the little towns all the Hogansvilles of Judah were swallowed up. All those communities that don't have great city walls. And they come to the very edge of Jerusalem itself. Now, Jerusalem is a well-fortified city. You could sing Psalm 48 at home, and you would sing about the fortification of, of Jerusalem. Now, the significance of this is that Jerusalem, you remember, is the city of David. And David is the one who is pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, the city of David is a type of the heavenly Zion that is promised to us by the Apostle John at the end of the Bible. 
So whenever we read about the earthly Jerusalem here in Israel, we're not supposed to get some kind of premillennial fixation on the land of Israel itself and, and the physical city of Jerusalem. Now, God has said that he will not forget the Jews, and there may be blessings that come to the Jews after the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in. The Bible says in Romans that after the fullness of the Gentiles, the Jews will be converted too. So I don't want to exclude that. But the, the city of Zion, the, the real emphasis here, was, was not a uh, kind of a, a carnal uh, conquest, but rather it was, it was to point us to the new heavens and the new earth that would come only through the spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's the great significance. So as we see the enemy of the Assyrians <clears throat> at the gates of Jerusalem, we need to recognize that the significance of this is that the, the, this is the church under duress. This is the church that's being persecuted from without. This is the church that is being attacked and, if possible, to be destroyed. So we're at a very crucial moment in the history of the life of the church because, remember, that the church does not exist like it does today all over the world in many different cultures. The church in this day exists right here in Israel. This is the church. The church is there among the people of God in the land of Israel, and its focus is in Jerusalem because there is the name of God dwelling. There is the Ark of the Covenant. There is the temple. There are the sacrifices. There is where the prophets often would go and preach their word to the people of God. So th th this is a very significant historical moment. So what does Hezekiah do? So Hezekiah seeks the Lord, and he also seeks the Lord through going to the prophet Isaiah. Now, all of you know Isaiah, of course. He's the, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. He's got one of the largest books in the Bible. Um, and Hezekiah hears from the diplomats. You remember last week we saw that the um, Sennacherib sends Rabshakeh and some others from the Assyrians, and King Hezekiah wisely does not meet directly with them, but sends his own emissaries so that they speak diplomat to diplomat at the wall of Jerusalem. And remember, they're saying, hey, you know, speak to us in Aramaic, we, you know, or Judean, we know it. And then they said, no, you know, these people are condemned to die. And, uh, and, and you know, none of the other gods could save uh, all the nations we've conquered, and it's going to be that way with you as well. So Hezekiah is deeply distressed, even to the point here, we're told in verse 1, what does he do? He, he tears his clothing. Now, why would you do that? Children, that might seem strange to tear up your own clothing, okay? You, your mom is probably not going to be happy with you if you did that your, yourself. You better have a very good reason for tearing your clothing, okay? And, and it better not be in a fit of anger, like... Uh, a golfer in a tournament we saw a few weeks ago got angry. And <laughs> no, Hezekiah is tearing his garments because it's a sign of great distress. He's humbling himself. Now, this is the king. Imagine the president of the United States. Imagine the king of Great Britain publicly, ceremonially tearing their garments. It's a, it's a sign of deep distress. 
uh, to the Lord. And not only does he tear his clothes, but what? He covers himself with sackcloth. So he, he puts on burlap, if you will, scratchy, itchy stuff that you put potatoes in, or I don't know what, they, they put grain in it. In America, we put potatoes in it. But it, it, very uncomfortable stuff that, that, that scratches, and it, it's meant to, it's meant to irritate, it's meant to remind you and afflict you of the distress that you are under, and, and it's a sign of humbling oneself and saying, God, I am, I am broken, I am poor, I'm at, at, my, at the end of my own resources as a king. And I am completely dependent, Lord, on you. Now, verse 1 does not state it, but I think we probably could infer it safely that with this distress, Hezekiah began to fast as well with, with the tearing of his garments and the putting on of sackcloth. There, no doubt, Hezekiah being a godly man was also beginning to fast because the distress and the grief were so overwhelming. Satan seems spiritually to be winning here. The capital city, the city of Zion, is seemingly on the verge of being, of being extinguished and removed. And it seems as though Satan may indeed snuff out the kingdom of God before the Messiah can come. If he can strangle the kingdom of God uh, prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, then Satan will have won. And so this great and godly king, he humbles himself, he mourns, he grieves, and he implores the Lord for mercy. Now what shall we say of this for us in the 21st century? Well, a few things. First of all, we ought to learn that when we as a church are beset with crisis, we also are to humble ourselves before God. When we are greatly distressed, providentially, and we have to remember God is sovereign in all of this, God is the one who allowed the Assyrians to come to the very gates of Jerusalem. That we as a church are to humble ourselves before the Lord. The Lord wants us to be empty of ourselves when confronted with such great distress. What does Hezekiah do here? He humbles himself, and he goes, we are told, to the house of God. Now, that going to the house of God does not mean that you must come to the church always physically. But what, what the significance of the house of God was what? The house of God was where the Spirit of God dwelt in the inner sanctuary. So in a sense, that Hezekiah was, by going to the house of God, he was going to God. Now, that does not mean that we must go to a particular physical location in order to be near to God. We have to recognize that Jesus has torn down that temple and has raised it up in his body on the third day, and that now we come to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the temple through which we approach the Father. And so we, we come in the name of Jesus. And this is why, boys and girls, we pray in our prayers in Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name because we are saying, Lord, we're coming to you by way of the temple you have provided. You have opened this way of access through your son. We're coming in his name. And Lord, we humble ourselves in utter dependence upon you. So sometimes God will allow the church to be greatly distressed. Now, it might be a particular congregation that is distressed. It might be the church at large 
that is under distress. But God, of course, wants to see his children act appropriately as a heavenly father. We expect that as earthly parents, don't we? We expect that when there's great distress in the home, that our children learn to, uh, as according to their maturity, that they respond appropriately to the distress. And so we teach our children, this is a serious crisis in our family right now. This is, you know, we've lost a loved one. We've lost an aunt. Somebody, a family member has died. And we teach our children that this is a time of, of grief and mourning. This is not a time to be thinking of ourselves and playing video games. This is a, this is a time where we need to reflect on, on what's happened. That death or some kind of... Um, some kind of providential paddling or stick has come upon us. And, you know, as Sarah Edwards said uh, in her correspondence, that we learn to kiss the rod of God's discipline. We learn to kiss the rod of God's discipline. How do we do that? We, we humble ourselves and we recognize, God, you are sovereign and you have brought this about. And Hezekiah is out of all significant earthly options. Now he's throwing himself at the mercy of God. He is greatly outnumbered. The Assyrians, economically, politically, militarily, they are the superpower of the day. And, and he is utterly dependent upon the Lord. So what does he do? Well, we're told in verses 2 through 5, Hezekiah sends a delegation of political and religious, if you will, his cabinet, political and religious cabinet, to Isaiah the prophet. He sends some who are his advisors politically, and then he also sends some of the elders of the church to go as a delegation and to lament the condition of God's people before Isaiah and to ask the great prophet to pray for the people of God in the city of Jerusalem. Look with me here at our text. Then he sent Eliakim, who is over the household, with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, so he's, he's sending his government officials. He's sending here also the priesthood. Church and state are going to visit the prophet. And sometimes church and state need to work hand in hand. You remember um, many years ago, you remember probably over a decade ago, we had a great drought in Georgia. You remember that? You remember how we, we, we saw images of Lake Lanier you know, shrinking, and and what did our governor do? He called for a day of prayer, didn't he? And you remember how how many mocked our governor for doing that? They had a meeting at the Capitol, a, a prayer meeting, and and but the governor was right to do so. When we are under some kind of calamity, some kind of distress, and when our water supply is shrinking for the largest city in our state, uh, the governor was right that. We need to humble ourselves before God and implore his favor. And you remember, many mocked him. And what happened a few days later? <laughs> After that prayer meeting, it began to rain. <laughs> and, and God heard our prayers, and he delivered us. And so sometimes, yes, sometimes the civil magistrate, <clears throat> sometimes the civil magistrate needs to take the lead and say, hey, you Christians, start organizing prayer meetings. We're under, we're under distress. Sometimes, as the Westminster Confession says, it, it is appropriate for the civil magistrate as a nursing father 
I mean, how did you get your confession and catechisms? It was the, it was the civil magistrate. He said, get the best theologians, the top hundred theologians in Great Britain together and meet in London and figure this thing out so that we can bring some kind of theological uniformity to, to our country. Did you know that? It wasn't the church that took the lead there. It was the, it was the state who said, you theologians, we have a, we have a problem here. And uh, it didn't work out as the civil magistrate had hoped, but I think through it, God actually did more than they could have ever hoped or imagined. Now we've got people all over the world who study their shorter catechism and, and look to the Westminster Standards as that which the Bible teaches today. Not only does Hezekiah in the crisis humble himself before God, but what does he do? He calls upon the godly to pray for him and for the people of God. And so we see here that the church is beset with great distress that we as the church must respond by turning to the Lord. We humble ourselves, but what we also ask other Christians to please pray as well. Maybe if you're going through a crisis, and you pray, but also maybe you need to ask others in the church to please help you with this burden. The Bible says that we are to bear one another's burdens. Uh, we, we are, and we're going to see this tonight, when... Peter says, cast your anxiety upon the Lord. You're not supposed to be bearing this anxiety. What's, what is Hezekiah doing? He, he is doing what's right. He's taking his anxiety about himself, his nation, his city, and he, he's, he's bringing it to Isaiah, and he's saying, Isaiah, I need you to bear this burden with me. I need you to pray with me and for me for this people. And the Bible says that we have today even somebody better than Isaiah. We have the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Bible says that Jesus is alive and he lives to what? Make intercession, we're told, for the people of God. Jesus Christ, your great high priest, your great prophet, he will bear burdens for you if you will go to him and and cast your cares upon him and, and your anxieties upon him and he will what? He will give you the peace that passes understanding. There's going to come a day, young people, you need to know this, there's going to come a day you are going to realize this world is not your home and not your friend. God is providentially going to remind you through suffering. Now, maybe you're living the Mayberry life so far, and I hope you are. <laughs> I hope you're like Opie, <laughs> and you're, you're enjoying your youth. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, enjoy your youth while you got it. Because what? God is going to uh, remind you that it's not that way until glory. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be trials. There's going to be difficulties. And you are going to have to learn to persevere. You're going to have to learn to take these problems and bring them to the Lord. And to bear these things to God. You, right now, providentially, maybe, now some young people do suffer early in life. And it's interesting, God often uses those people later. Um, but 
A lot of you, hey, comparatively, you've had it pretty easy thus far. So listen to this lesson. Remember this day. Remember this day. You're going to say, Pastor Boyd told me, <laughs> right? There are going to be days like this. There are going to be days of distress, and the Assyrians are at the wall, and I'm not supposed to be surprised by this. What do I do? I go to the Lord, and I call on God's people, and I take it to Jesus Christ, my great prophet, and I ask Jesus to intercede. You know, two of the three persons of the Trinity are interceding for you. That's what the Bible teaches. Did you know that? The Bible says Jesus makes intercession for us. The Bible also, in Romans 8, says the Spirit also makes intercession for us. Now, let me say, by way of thanks, I want to thank those of you who are laboring in prayer. Thank you to those of you who I know I count on for praying. Um, most prayer, I know, is chiefly done in secret. And there may be some of you that are praying even more than I realize. I know some of you are praying in either privately or in small groups, and, and I thank you uh, for that. In fact, I have often wondered how many times we've been spared as a church of sorrows because of your prayers, or at least those sorrows have been mitigated quickly because of your faithfulness to pray. And I, I do want to thank you. Uh, for that, I want to be a, your encourager in secret prayer, in small group prayer, and in corporate prayer here in the church. Now, to others of us who maybe haven't been working as hard as we probably should at prayer lately, and I'll say that for myself as well, I think, even. Even pastors, sometimes they allow the busyness of ministry to push out the, the prayer time that needs to be guarded jealously and sometimes isn't guarded as jealously as we should. So I'll put myself in this same application here. To others of us, let's consider Hezekiah's example and ask ourselves a few questions here. Is the Christian church in such a state of prosperity that we do not need to labor much in prayer right now? Have we entered in to the great eschaton? Uh, you know, are, are, we, are we in the green pastures and still waters and can I stick my hand in the hole of a cobra and not worry? Nope. The snake is still out there and Satan is seeking to devour those who are unaware. Are there not many ways that the Assyrians are still at our gates? Now, we certainly don't feel the distress the way some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world do. And we should remember that. We should be thankful for what God has given us, but we should also remember to pray for those brothers and sisters who are facing great distress right now. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. That applies not just with intra-congregationally, that's how we usually think of it, but I would argue inter-congregationally. That is that we are members of the same body of which Christ is the head, and so when they are distressed in North Korea, we should be distressed about it. When they are persecuted in Iran or Afghanistan for their faith in Jesus Christ, we are persecuted. We, the eye here in the United States cannot say to the hand in another part of the world, I don't need you. 
And so there is a sense we are all feeling the pressure of the Assyrians at the gates. Do we not have many children and grandchildren that are unconverted still? Are there not many in our own midst, in our own families, our own parents, aunts, uncles, siblings, cousins that need Jesus Christ, that have an eternal soul? Many of whom spent their youth under sound preaching and need to be awakened. That that seed that has been sown is, is lying there dormant and it needs to begin to germinate. Only the Spirit of God is going to be able to do that. We are at the end of our resources. Uh, have we torn our garments? Have we mourned before the Lord? Have we asked others to pray? Like Hezekiah? What about our nation? Is it going in the correct and right moral direction, do you think? Do you think we're, we're going in the right way spiritually as a country? Are there not daily murders that we can, we can turn on our TV almost any night. Almost any night. Turn on the Channel 5, Channel 2, Channel 11 news in Atlanta, and there will be a murder. And the, the Bible says that the blood of, of these people who have been killed rise up to God. Um, are we not flooded today with coarseness? Have you not noticed the amount of swearing now that goes on in this country? The blaspheming, the idolatry, the love of self, the love of money, the love of pleasure, the love of sexual immorality, the man-centeredness of it all. You know, living for you, living for yourself, Have we not made idols of technology? Is, do we not desecrate the Sabbath? You know, many, even in the church, don't even think there's a Sabbath day anymore. They think that it's tied to the law of Moses and has been done away with. Friends, listen, the Sabbath is there from the beginning. It's in Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the law of Moses. It's a creation ordinance. Come on. Wake up. The law said, remember the Sabbath day. <laughs> they already knew it. God was already even teaching them about the Sabbath in the way he distributed the manna. What did he do on, on Friday night? He gave them a double portion so that what? They wouldn't be working the next day. That was even before Mount Sinai. Friends, the, the Sabbath has is, is not been done away with as a ordinance of six and one is still with us. It's pointing us to the, to the eternal Sabbath that's coming. I say this because as Sinclair Ferguson has said, the, the problem with Western evangelicalism is we're not discouraged enough. We think that nobody's at the gates. We don't realize our own situation. We, we're not far from captivity. So in verse 3, how does Hezekiah describe this to Isaiah? He describes it like a woman who is at the very end of her pregnancy. Verse 3, they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For children have come to birth and there is no strength to deliver. So he compares the situation to that of 
a greatly pregnant woman, and her time to deliver has come, and what? She doesn't have the energy and the strength to bring forth this child. Her life is in jeopardy. The life of the child is in jeopardy. And this is, of course, written in a time when they didn't have the emergency measures we have today. So Hezekiah, in verse 4, he asks that the delegation request Isaiah to pray in hopes that the Lord would do what? That he might rebuke the proud and the arrogant words of the Assyrians. Look at verse 4. He says, perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. He says, Lord, you have heard the words of the Assyrians, proud words, arrogant words, idolatrous words. They compared you, Lord, to all the false gods of all these other nations that they've already conquered. So what, what do we say? Well, this is why when we pray, we invoke the honor of the Lord in our prayers. This is a good idea, a good, a good tactic in prayer. How do we get God's attention best? Well, when we invoke his own name and honor in the cause. This is also will help us, I think, to steer our prayers away from just selfish prayers that uh, God says, oh, come, come on, child. We pray for the honor and the glory of God. What, what does the Lord's Prayer teach us? It says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the very first petition? That God would be honored. Lord, your name is at stake in our prayers. Your name is at stake because we are in union with you through Jesus Christ. Your name is on us. And our name is with you. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Lord, we, we are tied by this indissolvable bond of Jesus Christ together. And so, Lord, this is not just our cause, this is your cause. Lord, if we are destroyed, your name is destroyed. Lord, what, what glory, what honor will come if, if Jerusalem is destroyed and the remnant is wiped out? Lord, what will the nation say? You who brought up your people with a strong right arm out of Egypt and led them through the wilderness for 40 years and planted them in this land, and now you've allowed us to be destroyed utterly. God, will you not save your people? Lord, will you not save this remnant that lie behind the walls of Jerusalem? That's what Hezekiah is saying here. Make sure when you go and talk to Isaiah that you remind Isaiah that this is not just Hezekiah's cause. This is the cause of the Lord. Again, as I said earlier, this is why we pray in Jesus' name. We're saying, Lord, this is not just our, our petitions. These are not just our desires. But Lord, these things are wrapped up in the name of Jesus Christ. And so for the sake of Christ, hear us. For the sake of Jesus, answer our prayers. Hear us, O Lord. Don't be far from us. Don't be, O God, deaf unto us. So many times the psalmist prays that. But hear us. Well, I've got to move on to the second point here. Let's look at the response a little bit more quickly in verses 6 and 7. The delegation, they go and they speak to Isaiah and Isaiah responds and you have to realize that when Isaiah responds, it's the Lord responding through Isaiah. 
because Isaiah is a prophet, boys and girls. So what Isaiah says here is really the word of the Lord. So let's look at verse 6. Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Now notice that the very first thing that Isaiah says to the delegation is what? Thus says the Lord. This is the word of God, and that God is saying to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be anxious. I've heard your prayers. I've heard your concerns. Now, how many times does the Lord remind his people not to fear in the Bible? How many times do we read that from angels? Fear not. We hear it in the passages that we read this time of year when we think of the coming of Jesus Christ in his incarnation. Fear not. I am with you. God is on our side. God loves us. We are his people. He has not forgotten us. He has a great plan for his people. And he will not allow his people to be overrun. He will not allow his people to be utterly destroyed. Even if they be brought down to a small remnant because of their disobedience. Yet, for the sake of David and for the sake of the greater David, Jesus Christ, he will rescue us. The Lord, in verse 6, we see, has heard the blasphemy. And he will see to it that the king of Assyria returns to his own land and that he dies. And so what we see is that the Assyrians and Sennacherib, the king, make the mistake that so many worldly men still make today. They believe that the living God is less than themselves. And so they blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. They insult God by boasting in their own power, their own wealth, their own intellect, their own strength. They believe that they can flaunt God by uh, flaunting his commandments with impunity. They believe that they can do what they want to the church of God without any repercussions. We see this in the news today, don't we, with President Xi of China. He's torn down churches. He's actually destroyed the buildings. Uh, he's arrested some pastors, the most outspoken and faithful of the ministers in China. He's arrested them. Um, he's ordered uh, the, what he called the Sionization of the church. That is, he wanted basically the state to be put into the church so that there are pictures of the president in the sanctuary. And there, you know, there is this um, making the church more like China and submitting to the, the, the will of the state. We see it with King, Kim Jong-un in North Korea that many of our brothers and sisters are in internment camps. And these men are making the same mistake that Sennacherib is making. They think that the Christian God is like any other religion and that they can persecute the people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ with impunity and it will not come against them. They don't, un they don't tremble at the majesty of God or the sovereignty of God. They believe they can live without God in this world. They have no need of God. The Lord hears these blasphemous thoughts from afar, and he knows the thoughts and intentions of the ungodly, and that they are evil, as Genesis says, they are evil all the time. Until the Holy Spirit brings a renewal of a new nature within them, the thoughts and intents of man is always evil. And when the ungodly assault the church, as they do from time to time, 
God holds them accountable. Now, if he doesn't hold them strictly accountable in this life, he certainly will in the day of judgment. There are those who abuse the church and they live fat and prosperous lives and die in their own bed. And we are told in the book of Revelation that the martyrs who are under the throne of God, they cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? When will you avenge our blood that has been shed? And what does God say to them? Be still and rest a little bit longer. I haven't forgotten. Not all justice is fully carried out in this world. There's a day of reckoning coming. God may let, for his own purposes, may let evil run its course for a time. He may allow persecutions to break out. And he may bring relief and vengeance upon the ungodly in history, but he also may leave it to the day of judgment. Now, in our story here, God chose to bring relief. I'll tell you the, how it ends, boys and girls. He brings relief to Hezekiah in his day. But one day, whether God does such deliverances in history or not, one day we know at the end of history, God is going to bring a new Jerusalem to this world, a better Jerusalem than the one that David himself built. This will be a city not built with human hands. This will be the city of God, built by God himself, by the Spirit of God, through Jesus Christ. This will be a city whose gates need not ever be shut because there will be no ungodly Assyrians on the outside. God will deal with the ungodly in that day by casting them into what he calls the lake of fire. The Assyrians and all who follow Sennacherib's ways will be in a place of burning. See, you have to understand, the king of Assyria, this morning, while we're in church, he's in hell. His soul is in hell. He's in that place of temporary punishment, only to await what? the day of resurrection, when he will stand body and spirit before the living God whom he blasphemed. And on that day, God and Jesus Christ will sentence him and all who follow after his ways to eternal judgment that is described as the lake of fire. The king of Assyria's soul is in hell this morning, but it is only awaiting a final trial kind of like when we arrest somebody and we keep them in jail and if they are found guilty, then we send them to prison. There's a difference between jail and prison. The king of Assyria will stand and he will be found guilty. Jesus Christ will be seated before him and the king of Sennacherib, the kings of Syria, will bend the knee before Christ but it won't save him. Today here, there is good news for you and me, though. This is a day, the Bible says, is a day of salvation for us. That I have the privilege of standing before you today on behalf and in the name of Jesus Christ to offer all of us a way out, a way of salvation, a way of life, a way of eternal happiness that we need not perish with the Assyrians. And that way is found in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. But the good news is that all of us, though by nature we are like the Assyrians, idolatrous and rebellious against God, nevertheless, God is willing to make peace with you even now. God has given for a season of time and history this opportunity where anybody who hears the good news that you can be reconciled to this God and be at peace with this God through faith in his son, he will accept you and he will bring you in. You see, the, the good news is you've got the, this offer. It's almost like Hezekiah says, I got a counter offer for you, Sennacherib. I'll let you come in and bend your knee to me in Jerusalem. You think you have the advantage. You think you have the upper hand. You don't realize what's coming. 185,000 of you are about to die. If you were wise, you'd put down your arms and you'd come in the gates of Jerusalem and stop besieging the church of God. That's the real situation that we find here. In the, Jesus Christ is willing to open the gates of Jerusalem to you today if you will what? If you'll stop your rebellion against him and surrender your life to him and commit your way to him and acknowledge him with sincerity of heart that he's your king, he's your Lord. These are the terms of peace that Jesus is offering. He said, I'm offering you, the world, outside the gates, peace and reconciliation, if you'll but repent of your evil deeds, if you'll confess your evil deeds and confess your sins and forsake your sins and bend your knee to me, says Jesus Christ, I will give you grace and pardon. But if you refuse, you will surely die. You will suffer eternal death. Now, God may not kill you in your home with a sword like he's going to do to Sennacherib. He may let you live your life and go to your beaches and enjoy your hobbies and have pleasure in your home and enjoy your food and all your amusements and parties and all the rest that come with this world. But eventually he's going to summon you like Sennacherib. So I would say don't let this opportunity pass you by. Today is a wonderful opportunity to make peace with the living God. Today is a wonderful opportunity to renew your covenant with God. If you've been in covenant with God and you've been on the inside, but you really have not been living as you should on the inside of the walls of Jerusalem, and you're part of the problem why the Assyrians are at the gate in the first place, then I would say today is a wonderful opportunity to you, for you to recommit yourself to Jesus Christ. I would urge you not to delay. I would urge you not to waste this Sunday afternoon. But if you have any doubt, make certain this afternoon that you are right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't know, I don't know, what a day may bring. All it takes is a single car somebody looking at their cell phone, crossing that double yellow line, and we're in the presence of God giving an account.
And if you are outside of Jesus Christ, it will be too late. You know, how many of those 185,000 Assyrians didn't worry about it? And yet the angel of the Lord came and took their life away. They were young. They were virile. They were strong. They were the greatest army of the day. Their most powerful nation militarily. And they were brought to a very sudden end. You may be cut down very soon in your pride. And you will stand before the infinite, eternal, almighty God. And he's going to determine where you're going to spend the next trillion, trillion, trillion years of your existence. There's only two places, and there's no in-between. There's no purgatory. There's heaven with all its glory and bliss and love and joy, and there's a place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's it. And you must choose whom you will serve this day. Choose wisely. Let's choose Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the life of Hezekiah. We thank you for the greater life of Jesus Christ to whom he points. Now, Lord, we pray, bless us by your spirit for Christ's sake.